who is up for election in Michigan in 2022? Basically everyone but our U.S. senators. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be extremely lit this year. Let's <laughs> definitely get weird. You know, let's game this out. Let's assume that all three of the folks who've been challenged do get kicked off the ballot. Who's the nominee? I'm not a Republican. I think it's Garrett Saldano. You love Garrett Saldano. He's charming. I mean, he's <laughs> crazy as a dunghill rat. But he's personally very charming. I like him. I just said charm and likability goes a long way in, in elections, right? I'm, I'm lukewarm on politics, but I do like money. <laughs> so good. The shark thing makes sense. Yeah. There and we go. I did notice there are sharks on your socks. There are sharks on my socks <laughs> True to <right> brand. <laughs> okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a, a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? Justin, may the fourth be with you. Oh, is that how we're going to start this? Yes, may the 4th be with you as well. This wouldn't even air until the 5th or 6th, but but feel free to go with that. A lot coming up. Uh, this, this is a big week in general as far as dates in May. May the 4th be with you today, Cinco de Mayo's tomorrow. Mother's Day is on Sunday. That's the biggest, surprisingly, the biggest restaurant day of the year, data shows. Huge industry month for the hospitality industry in May. I, in college, I worked at a Mexican restaurant. Cinco de Mayo was lit. Is it my, am I too old to say lit? So much usage of the word lit in this, the rest of this episode today. You'll, you'll hear, they'll hear that in a little bit. But Cinco de Mayo, great industry day, one that I'm looking forward to. And Mother's Day, though, what are you, you going to be doing for your mother on Mother's Day? Probably make her dinner or bring, actually, I'll probably get takeout and bring it to her house. Yeah, she, that's the right answer. Yeah, yeah. Perfect answer. You are a... Mother of dogs, is anything you think that they will be leaving you? I doubt it. I'm also, you know, we don't have time to get into it, but I don't know how I feel about the whole dog mom thing anymore. I really leaned into it for a long time. I have two dogs at home. Um, you have the mug. I do. They got me for Secret Santa. You're welcome. But I don't know. It makes me feel a little bit too millennial. I don't know. Am I getting older? I don't know. I just, I don't know how I feel about it. Next episode, we can really dive into it. Sounds deep. What, well, are you, what are your plans? Well, the mother of my children will be honored and celebrated that day. We also will be bringing in loads of food to the household. And the kids and I are working on making something that is not done. We have made a lot of garden stones with the handprints. I'm not sure there's enough garden to make another one, frankly. So uh, my daughter is very creative. We're going to have to see what she can come up with. I've got a few days still to figure this out, but it, it'll be good. I it's promise you that. Also a test. You can't talk about it because does she listen to the podcast? If I, I will know that she did if I do not deliver something A-list and she said, I thought you said it was going to be great. So we'll know soon enough. Nice. Okay, so we're keeping this intro pretty short, different from our normal segments. Why are we doing so? Oh, this is the episode of episodes. Listenership is going to go through the roof. It will quadruple. That's my prediction anyways. We have with us today Adrian Hemond uh, and John Selleck, two people around Lansing that everyone knows, consultants, uh, gurus, if you will. They really have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in Lansing and we are going to do an election preview. We are going to dig real deep uh, into the 2022 election cycle. 
and talk about each of the specific races and a lot of the context that's going to go in and that will shape the narrative uh, around which each of these races uh, will take place. It's it's pretty funny. I think both of them are pretty good off the cuff. And and there's a lot of really good intel in there. And for those struggling to follow along on all of the districts that get specifically dropped, uh, there will be maps included. So check those out in the show notes. Really good conversation for anyone to listen to. They break it down in detail, but also for any level of listener for the political landscape to get a gist of what's going on. And don't sleep on the Detroit Pistons talk at the very end where we go... I won't say deep, but we talk a little bit about the draft coming up and where the Pistons should go. Uh, so, so stay tuned at the very, very end uh, for for that conversation as well. All right, let's do it. Okay, Emily, it is time. We've been talking about this for months. The 2022 election preview for the MRLA members and anyone, frankly, that's going to listen to what's with the Pineapple Podcast is upon us. We have two elite, elite guests with us today. Adrian Hemond and John Selleck are both with us. Why don't you dap them up a little bit? Give them, give them a good intro. Let's go. Will do. Adrian is the CEO of Grassroots Midwest. He founded the firm in 2013 after acquiring a broad range of experience and expertise in politics, ranging from multi-client lobbying to lead staff for a variety of Detroit-based House representatives. Hemond holds a BA and an MA from Michigan State University, both in political silence. <laughs> political silence. <laughs> that I would mean. be better for everyone, really, <laughs> political does. silence. I like that. That's Freudian a little bit, but, but either way, go green. Continue. Go away. He enjoys basketball, Elasmo Brink related travel, which has something to do with sharks. And we all know that. <laughs> mixed martial arts and the music of Duke Ellington. We have John Selleck with us. No, as before we get to John. Okay. Selleck. I, I didn't even know you had a first name. <laughs> How do you not even reference Kush specifically? Yeah. I mean, the man's a living legend. Let's talk. How is it not just worked for Kush, and then everything else comes after. You know, I mean, that's that's fair, but I, I got to give, you know, Conyers his dap, too. There are a lot of names, right? Like, I don't want to just feature one. I feel like we should bring you back and just have Kush and Conyers story time, because there, <laughs> there are so many. I mean, how long you got? Right. <laughs> They're all so good. Uh, and and then let's let's hit this one more time. Elasmo Brank. Brank? Yeah. Yeah, Elasmo Brank. It's um, shark skates and rays, the cartilaginous fishes. Yeah, we all knew that. That's what I said at the beginning, and I still firmly believe that I always knew that, whether that's true or not. Uh, Cartil right. what? Cartilaginous. They don't have bones. That'll be the third time you come back. We'll talk just about that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Dap up Selleck. Selleck is founder and CEO of Harbor Strategic, a public affairs and PR firm with offices in Lansing and Southeast Michigan. Using experiences gained from working for two Michigan speakers of the House, a governor's policy shop, two state attorney generals, and several presidential and gubernatorial campaigns, John helps his corporate, nonprofit, and political clients navigate the intersection of policy, politics, and the media. You can find him at harborstrategic.com. And I like my fish uh, out of the water, cooked, under the broiler. I'm not going to wrestle it. I'm not going to swim with it. I'm not going to wrestle it like you might do. I just like to swim with them, right? I, I like to eat them, too. I'm not going to lie. But I also <laughs> like to swim with them. 
Uh, gentlemen, uh, we are very fortunate. This this hour or ho however long we end up going here, you guys normally can get several thousand dollars for. I expect to see this shtick on TV at some point in time. Scuba, look out. <laughs> <laughs> so we are very fortunate to have you here. We've worked, uh, the association, I personally worked with both of you on a couple different occasions, uh, and it has it has been fantastic, which is why I'm, I'm fortunate that you both actually uh, made the time to do this for us today. Well, thank so, you. Without any further ado, there is, actually, no, there is more ado, because I do want to get into it. But before we get into it, we always like to ask our guests, and maybe, Emily, you can, you can make the lead here. What is our, we call it a warm lead in the biz. What's our, what's our warm lead question? What's your experience in the industry? Yeah. Yeah. Every people, one in three people, or one in three individuals people, I also went to Michigan State University. <laughs> One in three individuals worked in this industry at some point in time. Uh, so did either of you have uh, an experience in this industry before rising to the heights that you have today? I did. I actually, my first W-2 job was at a Showstack Burger King in beautiful Okemos, Michigan, um, wow. which is uh, recently torn down um, to make way oh, for yeah. I'm not sure what. Um, yeah, that was my, my first W-2 job was uh, for one of your members. Wow, shout out Team Showstack Family Restaurants. Which was torn down to build the Buddies, who was our last episode guest. Oh, yes. it all. It's all coming full circle. <laughs> wow. Uh, but that's wait, amazing. what were the non-W2 jobs? <laughs> hey, this is a family-friendly podcast. We're going to keep this PG-13. This That'll is be the not a triple X truck stop feature. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> that's that's a phenomenal, a phenomenal job. Uh, Selleck. Yes, sir. I was a waiter at a uh, restaurant that's part of a small chain here in Michigan. And to protect them and the innocent, I'm not going to say which one it was. No names. Um, <laughs> no names at I actually, all? Actually, I loved the job. I loved the industry. It's not a whole lot different than politics. Like, the harder you work, the more good things that happen. The more lackadaisical you get or start gossiping, you're going to get run over. And I will admit, there was a day I'm not a the most balanced guy. Some people say mentally, but physically as well. <laughs> I can picture it right now. I was probably 21. I had a full round tray of drink. Actually, I have two stories. Oh, crap. <laughs> it's good. Full round it's tray. A very warm lead. Full round tray of sodas. Brought it to the table. And just as I like leaned in to hand them out, I distributed them more rapidly. And they shot all over the place. And my manager just came over and he looked at me and just said, Selick, I'm not sure what industry is for you. This is not it. This is not it. <laughs> that was not my last day, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> because I am a charmer. Nice. And I love the business. It was it was super fun, and I appreciate uh, all the hard work that everybody uh, out there, especially during the pandemic, has tried to do. And we all try to do our best to support those businesses with the takeout and everything else. And we're glad to be back. Sounds like some great leadership you 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 picked up from not to be named chain regional to just this this state or multiple states. Uh, I think it was a couple states. Hmm, I'm going to have to figure this out. <laughs> Once we're not recording, wink, wink, you can tell sure, us. Sure, I'll tell you. <laughs> Joe, got that. All right, now without further ado, because we've, we have the warm lead in, there's a lot to talk about. The 2022 election cycle is going to be insane, especially it feels like in Michigan, just like the pandemic felt like it, felt like it played out more intensely here than, than maybe anywhere else in, in, in the country. This election cycle, especially with some of the things we'll talk about, uh, feels like it's going to play out very intensely uh, here as well. But give us some context. Adrian, who is up for election in Michigan in 2022? 
basically everyone but our U.S. senators. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be extremely lit this year. Let's definitely get weird. Um, the governor's up, the AG's up, the secretary of state's up, the entire Michigan House and Senate, all 13 of our congressional districts, because we only have 13 now. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, there's, there, it's going to be lit. That's correct. 13 congressional districts. Well noted, and we'll get to those uh, in, in just a little bit. What are some of the things... Selick, will you put into context how these maps are different than normal? Every 10 years, it is customary to to change uh, the maps, and we do a redistricting process. How has it been different this year? Uh, well, In so, two minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> Summarize Proust. It got done by a bunch of people who never did it before and didn't know what they were doing on one of the most complex, confusing, difficult-to-do things. And now we're running on these new maps made by them. But supposedly, <laughs> they are more transparent, more fair and have set an example for the rest of our fine country. You said supposedly in there. Uh, they are unique and dramatically different than anything we have seen in the past, right? They're, they, they, it would appear, and, and, and correct me, either of you, if you think I'm wrong, that they have valued trying to create as many 50-50-ish districts uh, as, as possible at the expense of, of line cutting. So you see a lot of districts that, that go across counties that they didn't use to prior uh, sometimes right. within cities, large and small. I'm from the city of Clawson. It's a square mile. It has been split up in some of these districts, which is remarkable. That's to right. Me Whereas as well. the, the the holy grail was don't cross county lines, make as few cuts as you possibly can. And right now, if you look at the Senate maps, for example, in Southeast Michigan, they all start in Oakland and they stretch like really long fingers all the way down through whatever they have to go through to get into Detroit. And that is where they achieve their their racial and their um, their uh, partisan balances. Well, and I think it's um, it's very interesting, actually. I did a uh, I was the moderator of a panel about redistricting last week, um, and one of the commissioners was one of our panelists. And so I, I led off with, um, "What's a community of interest?" as my first question. And I thought it was very interesting. And I, to her credit, she was very open about the fact that the commission explicitly rejected political boundaries as communities of interest. And they went in uh, just openly in a more identity-based direction, which I think is, I mean, number one, that has huge implications for elections in Michigan. But also, I think it's it's kind of shocking, the idea that, you know, these social and ethnic and religious groups that you identify with would be more important in how we apportion the state than the political boundaries in our constitution, or if you for instance. happen to live in a town that's on the lake. Then you got lumped in with other towns on the lake. And we're going to get to that in the legislature, Selig. They did some, uh, speaking of let's get weird, they did some weird stuff around the lakeshores. I mean, on the plus side, it was by far the most transparent process that's ever existed. We know that much. The Republicans take all the grief these days for having been the ones working in secret behind the scenes. But I don't want to say how old I am, but when I started, the House was controlled by Democrats. And so the Democrats were the folks that were behind the scenes drawing the maps and working out the deals to get the seats that they wanted. And it was a real uphill struggle for the Republicans to try to get the House in the 90s. It was Democrat. It was Republican. It was 50-50. But overall, what we learn is that this is like a laboratory in which they're trying to draw out the kind of seats they like to see. What they don't keep control of are all the people. So they're always moving. They're always doing other things, making the maps you know, inaccurate at certain points. So these maps, even though they're fresh right now, very rapidly will be start to become stale, just like the last batch did. Um, it'll be fascinating to see how they play out, certainly because they were drawn in a very different fashion. Yeah, there's always been a preference, whatever party was in charge, uh, to to not pit legislator against uh, legislator. But right. you're going to see that a little bit more, and I think we'll get into that in a little bit. More more contested uh, affairs of, of 
Uh, sitting, sitting senators, reps, etc. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Hit me briefly, historical trend lines for off-year elections, especially after a new president is, is elected. What, what do you normally see? It's normally very, very bad for the party of the president. Really, the only time since the Second World War that's not been the case was George W. Bush after 9-11 which obviously is a sort of cataclysmic event that one should not count on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the fundamentals in terms of, you know, what normally happens to a president's party tell you that Democrats should get their heads caved in this year. It's not clear whether they will or not, but the, you know, the environment's bad, which it always is in a president's first midterm. You wouldn't know that Adrian enjoys MMA, by the way he describes things. <laughs> People getting their heads caved in. What do you mean? <laughs> Blood baths. That's right. No uh, reference to sharks yet, though. Yeah, I'm getting there. We'll get there. Anything that happened, let's say, this week that makes you think that maybe that that prevailing, that predominant narrative might change, might be different because of what's going on in the environment? Sure. Um, you know, the the preview, we'll call it, of a potential uh, row opinion, I think, is is one thing that you throw into the mix there that could, you know, shuffle the deck a little bit. I'm a little skeptical that that's going to shuffle the deck quite as much as perhaps some Democrats are hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some of that depends on how much dumb triumphalism around the issue we see from Republicans. This is something that really afflicted Obama going into that 2010 year, which was a bloodbath for Democrats, was hubris, right? Um, the Obama folks weren't interested in negotiating, right? They they would have a conversation about why you should do what they wanted, but they made it very clear that, like, you know, we want all these seats, we want the presidency, you know, do what we want or take a hike. If Republicans are in that sort of position going into the election, then, you know, a road decision could play a little bit better for Democrats. Um, so don't screw up, guys. <laughs> we are we are so early in the uh, the reaction to what occurred this week, and I bet you money there's a ton of people out there based on how intensely it was reported that think it actually happened. Oh, hundred percent! Right? It wasn't yeah. just a leak. The, the vote actually happened. Here we go. Let's get let's get down to business. Now you see the um, the ballot initiative that's working to put um, reproductive rights into the Constitution. So they got 900 new volunteers yesterday, which is like you know a 200 percent increase or whatever from what they had. I think what that means is we're in such an early phase of the reaction to it, and we haven't even seen the actual um, opinion take place. We can't really judge it yet. So everybody that was really against uh, abortion is going bonkers. Everybody that wants reproductive rights is really going bonkers. And everybody else that's sort of in the middle that doesn't like talking about this with their friends, it's too controversial, it's too difficult to deal with, or the 10% in every poll that say they don't have an opinion (laughs) They haven't changed their position. So we have a ways to go, like Adrian's talking about. The Both the Republicans and Democrats could completely overplay their hands on these things. But what we do know, what we're seeing right now, and I'm sure that Adrian would agree with me, is that the Democrats were absolutely desperate for some kind of issue to drop out of the sky and help them rally around something other than Joe Biden and inflation and Ukraine and Afghanistan and potholes. And this is it right now. You went full baritone. I know that's how that's how I know you were serious. Yeah, the only part of that I disagree with is that, I mean, I, you've seen Joe Biden's poll numbers. Nobody's trying to rally around Joe Biden right now. <laughs> Let, let's be 100% about that. That's a lot of context. And we didn't really even go into any detail on, on record-setting inflation. We didn't talk about supply chain. We didn't talk about some of the international affairs, what China is doing and frankly not doing uh, right now that will impact the economy going forward and Ukraine, Russia. We haven't even talked about all those things. That's a lot to throw into an election cycle. Do you think any singular narrative can come out of all of those variables as we head into, uh, let's say, the primary season and then, and then the general election as well? You know, fundamentally, elections come down to answering a question for voters, which is, 
what's in it for me if you win? And I think that the that's what the narrative around this election is going to be crafted around. I think that you know all of these other issues you talked about, the land war that's going on in Europe, China, um, inflation, all of that, where that all meets up is how does it impact what goes on under your roof, right? How does it impact the prices that you pay for things, um, your you know your ability to get around, you know the things that actually matter to most normal people who don't do what we do for a living on a day to day basis in their lives, and those things do matter for their lives. That's what's going to craft the narrative going into November. Sure, and, and so far it's been seen more as a referendum on those that are in charge. So the people taking the grief are the Democrats, and that's if the Republicans were smart they'd sort of stay out of the Democrats' way and let them keep on doing what they're doing. Um, we got too long to go probably for that to be the case. We Worked for the Democrats in 2020, right? Keep Joe Biden in his basement and let Donald Trump screw up. Great strategy. Paid off. It seemed to work. We'll, we'll be getting to Well, I mean, listen, if you want to throw in the Ohio Senate primary yesterday mm-hmm. and, and the apparently still high relevance of uh, one Donald Trump to, to have uh, a say in the party, and if you want to throw in any of the Michigan special election uh, from last night as well, anything anything to add before we get into the meat of uh, of what's to come in, in the general election? Sure. I think you framed this up right, right? The, the Trump endorsement is very important in Republican primary politics, but it's not the be-all, end-all, right? R.J. Regan had a Trump endorsement, and I'm happy to say I funneled a lot of money into that race, and he did not win. Now, uh, on the flip side of that, the Trump endorsement was clearly very important to J.D. Vance in Ohio in turning that around. Like he was running legitimately in third in that race until the Trump endorsement came down. Now, the extra $4 million of Peter Thiel's money for the last three weeks also helped a lot. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. Um, and that actually, the the Thiel infusion preceded the Trump endorsement, or at least the first part of it did. But the Trump endorsement is it's still the number one thing you should be tracking in a Republican primary in terms of the outcome. But there are other factors that matter a lot, too, like money. Sure. And what will undo what I was talking about a minute ago, that the focus is on President Biden, the Democrats governing, is... Uh, an election like what happened in Ohio. So that's going to affect the national narrative. They were following the horse race day in and day out. And now the guy that got the Trump endorsement, the guy that was the never Trumper, so it creates all kinds more commotion and and a buzz on the ground there. The first story is out this morning. First of all, it's the story that Trump matters still and Trump's still controlling things, which is why I think he Biden, likes that. Why I, I think he does enjoy it's it. It's my hot take. Trump likes <laughs> that Trump matters. But it's why Joe Biden's president right now. Mm-hmm. The very first stories out of Axios and Politico this morning are how every uh, other GOP Senate member in Washington hates J.D. Vance's guts. So now we'll commence the Civil War story again, which will remind everybody, are the Republicans really the folks to take over when you're this angry about the current state of affairs? Sure. That's okay. why early primaries are bad. Keep, Michigan, keep Michigan's primaries in August so we don't have that discussion for a long time. All right. That's a joke, but it's true. I don't see any opposition coming from Adrian. <laughs> All right, let's get into the gubernatorial race. We can we can hit the Democratic side pretty fast. Yeah, governors governors uh, uh, unopposed going to be on the ballot in in November has raised a load of money mm. and is in seemingly well positioned in what is otherwise a terrible year for her to have to run in. But let's spend some time talking about that Republican primary. We have ten candidates. For now. I say question. I say with question mark. There are signature challenges. This used to be a a niche attack. That seems to be the new the new norm. What do you think about the challenges to the signatures? I believe uh, by Mark Brewer, former Democratic Party chairman of three of the candidates. Is this something? 
Uh, is this smoke and no fire, or is there a real chance one or any of these candidates don't make it on uh, the ballot? And then also, is this is this just a practice that's here to stay? Yeah, it is. And you know, I had a very enlightening conversation this morning with a uh, an election law attorney who who I respect a lot. Um, and that's that's a short list, but he's he's near the top <laughs> of it. Um, and he told me there are three candidates in this primary that aren't making the ballot. Yeah, that's that is. I believe there are three candidates that have been challenged. That's correct. Wow, that's ma- that's making some news right there. It, it sure is. Um, the uh, Tudor Dixon has a different problem than the other two do. Tudor Dixon's problem is that she has the wrong end date for the term of governor on the petitions that were circulated. You may recall some prior candidates being thrown off the ballot for that exact same issue um, that's already been litigated once before. That candidate lost, um, and she seems quite likely to lose in court over this as well. Uh, you know, after she loses at the board of canvassers, the James Craig thing is is qualitatively different. It looks like Perry Johnson has the same problem because he used the same firm to gather some of these signatures, which were um, like crimes were committed here, right? Like our firm has done this signature work before. When you get a petition sheet where all the signatures are obviously done in the same two or three hands, you need to throw those in the trash instead of turning them in to the secretary of state. The first tell that there was a problem with there was that the Craig campaign tried to turn in thousands more signatures about 20 minutes after the deadline. You don't do that if you're confident in what you already turned in. Sure. Well, let's in, in the big in the big picture to start with. You brushed over the governor briefly, and I will just comment on that that she, to some extent she has righted her ship. In the absence of a strong unified Republican opposition that can really mess with her, she's raised her money. She stopped doing unforced errors like going out without her mask or flying on an airplane somewhere or getting her boat out ahead of time. I wonder if they're getting their boat out this year at all. Rough spring. It is It is a rough spring. Mine is still in my driveway. And she, like it or not, has she's calmed the waters so far. And the strange thing about politics is you might not understand from watching MSNBC or Fox that likability still is a valuable thing in politics. And she has that to a certain extent. Her numbers on personal approval are always higher than her job approval. And you know that when you make a mistake, if you've got some goodwill built up, it's a little easier to get forgiveness. I think they're counting on that a little bit. And I actually think they're starting to get to the point where they will benefit, now that they've righted their ship, from having someone else to make this election a choice instead of this being an election that's a referendum solely on the governor. They want that sort of GOP Trumpish cash cast to now kick up. So this election is a choice between two things. You may not like what I did. But look at what you're going to get, this disastrous thing. And the Republicans are helping because right now we're talking about these petition signatures being so jacked up. The story of James Craig, it, it should have a whole chapter in a book somewhere. This is a person who should be dominating the GOP primary right now. If you can believe it, he's been in the election. He's been in the race for a year. He got in last May. He had a huge unknown store of popularity amongst the media and a lot of people in southeast michigan that's allowed him to sit there and basically be this ghost ship who's done almost nothing to build on that lead but he gained it almost instantly because of that popularity in southeast michigan when you look at the polls that are out he's got 46 to 50 percent of the vote in the gop primary in southeast michigan and half the state lives in southeast michigan so it's a nice place to be the leader but he's gone through a number of campaign managers staff and that is a huge red flag not only for his like potential governing or whatever but collecting these signatures used to be the 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 barrier to entry to a bunch of advocates advocates um uh, activists gadflies nutjobs whatever from running for governor it used to keep them from doing it it's a lot of signatures to gather and that's because 
organized campaigns were able to get the signatures. Craig's campaign has never seemed organized. In fact, it seems disorganized repeatedly over and over again. And that's what's going to lead him to that they panicked and hired the, the wrong people, or it was probably the only people they could get compared to what all the other candidates were doing. And then strangely, we're going to end up with at least five candidates on the ballot who really under normal circumstances have no business running for governor and got these signatures. That is the true head scratcher of this election, that the lead person with the money couldn't figure out how to organize enough to do it the right way. And the people who traditionally couldn't even come close to being on the ballot will be on the ballot. Yeah, a lot of money got stolen from the James Craig campaign, <laughs> like in terms of actual crimes and forgery, but also, you know, shiftless consultants that drained his uh, campaign coffers. You know, Selleck has this exactly right. Bro, you had a year to get these signatures. A year. Yeah. Like there are what six people in this room like if we all worked full time for a year the six of us could get 15,000 signatures especially in southeast michigan sure. they didn't do that i'm not sure what that money was getting spent on up until then but yeah no a lot of money got stolen there i think the very interesting question you know let's game this out let's assume that all three of the folks who've been challenged do get kicked off the ballot who's the nominee i'm not a republican i think it's garrett soldano you love Garrett Saldana. He's charming. I mean, he's <laughs> crazy as a dunghill rat, but he's personally very charming. I like him. I just said charm and likability goes a long way in, it does. in elections, right? Yeah. I mean, the person that this whole petition thing benefits uh, is Perry Johnson if he makes the ballot. Think about the next month. These, these campaigns are all in purgatory. They don't know until May 26th if they're on the ballot or not. So if you're a campaign that was already struggling to raise money and didn't have a lot, Tudor Dixon, James Craig you're screwed. Like, who's going to give you money if they weren't already giving you money before? Perry Johnson, he has plenty of money, and he's already actually, he's the only candidate since James Craig entered to actually make a change in the makeup of the primary. Saldano, a little bit, somewhat impressive, 10% in a lot of these polls based on not that much money raised. But Perry Johnson made these ruthless moves to get in and spend the money and be on TV. And he's moved himself up to second place at trajectory. We haven't seen a poll in a month, really. He could be higher than that. And so what tells me that the James Craig strength and the fear on all sides about James Craig, that's why I just think it's so, just from an observational standpoint, disappointing to see his campaign fall apart like this, is that this week you saw all the Democrat powers attacking him and you saw all the GOP powers attacking him. It's still indicating he is the guy that no one else wants to have to run against if he actually knew how to run a campaign. So let's just take him out now. That's the attitude. Can you back it up just for a second, you said May 26th is when they will know if they're on the, the ballot in August. I know what that means. We all in this room know what that means. But for our listeners, can you just quickly break down that timeline and what the signatures mean to get you sure. what happens May 26th and then? Sure. Um, in April was the, the filing deadline to turn your signatures in in the first place by 4 p.m. That's why the folks that showed up at 420 for James Craig couldn't turn them in. The review starts and there's a window after or before which you can challenge. Someone else can look at your petition signatures that you filed and say, I see problems here. So a bunch of challenges were filed on James Craig, on Tudor Dixon, on Perry Johnson, and actually several other candidates around the state. But those were the gubernatorial ones that were challenged. And then the State Board of Canvassers, those are the election officials at the Secretary of State that review these things and then vote and make rulings on these things. They've announced that they'll look all over this as soon as they can. They're getting through it in the month of May. And by May 26th, they'll actually vote to say, yes, these people are on the ballot or no, they're not. Yeah, I had a uh, very interesting lunch meeting with a gentleman by the name of Tony Daunt that I'm fairly <laughs> certain some people in this room know um, who's on the state board of canvassers. And they're they're expecting to be there for basically like a day's worth of work to go through all of these. What was Tony's Murs quote of the day? Who's bringing us to Chipotle? 
for lunch <laughs> and, and, I, dinner. Said, and probably dinner. dinner. It's going to be a long day for the board of canvassers that day. All right, let's say, Adrian, your hot take is right. All three, those are those are three top-tier candidates that would all be off. I have not heard the name of Kevin Rinke, the other person who is uh, allegedly capable of self-funding to a big degree, uh, but I there are an awful lot of peccadillos that people talk about, but is not known. Why is Kevin Rinke not a, a has, why is his name not even entered this conversation yet? Ultimately, I think it comes back to something that Selleck said, right? Personal likability matters in elections. And, you know, I, Rinke should be coming off better than he is. A great example of this, you know, I'm on uh, leadership council at the Small Business Association. We had all of the Republican gubernatorial candidates in. James Craig did not show. Hold your applause. <laughs> he was collecting signatures. Give uh, a break. No, I mean, he probably did need to be out collecting signatures. But Rinky should be a natural for that off, uh, that audience, right? And, uh, and you're going to tease me about this. Soldano did better than Rinky or Perry Johnson with this office. Like, that's, that's a test of likability, right? Like, you're in a room full of other CEOs. If you should be able to close the deal with anybody, it's us. And he did not close the deal. All right. If Soldano is the candidate, Selleck, I'm going to go to you on this. What is what is the split in November between Garrett Soldano and the governor? Is this even, microphone working? Even oh, can you hear me? <laughs> the Dom Herrera. Is this thing on? Yeah, really. I mean, it, what money matters. Money is a big deal, right? Uh, that will give an advantage to Kevin Rinke. I mean, you're you're right. I, I thought about it myself many times. We talk about who's at the top of the game here for the GOP, and he doesn't get mentioned a lot, but he should mostly by the money that he spent. I think his like initial ad with the GTO and all that stuff was effective. It was good branding for him. It's what happened once he was just doing interviews and actually talking, which is what happens with most politicians because people like Adrian and I like to package people up and sell them on TV, and then you actually have to go to the restaurant and eat the food. And uh, that's not it's not as strong for him. It hasn't been like a disaster. But Such an amazing metaphor, by the way. You. It's just perfect. It's mm. deep. I thought about this before I came. <laughs> I would think I'd want more return on investment for the money that he spent. I almost start to wonder if he spent just not enough money. The, the message matters. You think he's being cautious. He's So he'll end up spending a bunch of money. He should have spent another million, and he would have been in a way better place and then waste all his money that he did spend being cautious. It's kind of like you just have to throw caution to win. He's got to take advantage of the fact that no one else has made an impact or changed the race besides Perry Johnson. If Perry's off the ballot, he needs to go full out. He's got his imagery. He's got his his muscle car this is usually an older audience that's voting in a gop primary it gives him the image that he's the tough guy and he's going to just go fast and get stuff done and he was already trying to make the race about him and gretchen whitmer he wasn't trying to make the race about him and tudor and perry and all these other people which is smart i'm gonna go adrian here first let's 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 take two versions of this let's say all candidates uh who submitted signatures end up qualifying whether that ends up being the case or not who do you think the republican primary winner is in August, you know, uh, probably either Tudor Dixon or Perry Johnson. I think a lot of it comes down to which one of them gets a Trump endorsement. Right now, I think probably Perry Johnson's a favorite for a Trump endorsement. Um, interested in Selleck's perspective on that from Republican land, but that seems from the outside looking in to be the case. If Perry Johnson gets a Trump endorsement and he's on the ballot, it's him. Yeah, the Trump endorsement's huge. A difference between here and say like Ohio or Pennsylvania where they also have a giant expensive U.S. Senate primary going on, is that a lot of these folks are kind of clustered together mm-hmm. percentage-wise, and that's not where Tudor Dixon is right now. Mm-hmm. For all the the good positive spin that she gets for going around town, meeting with people, being this like she's going to get the Trump endorsement, she's still in single digits. She hasn't been able to move the needle 
like Perry has. Um, and so even if she gets the Trump endorsement, she has to come from way behind to get up to speed, whereas Perry is sort of already there. So minus the Trump endorsement, it appears right now that Perry Johnson is making the moves to put himself into first place for sure right now. Um, with the Trump endorsement, I'm not positive Perry gets out, even if Trump endorses Dixon, in part for what I just said. And number two, yeah, he's got the money to run his own deal. He'll say he's pro-Trump, just like the the other folks in Ohio and Pennsylvania. And the dude wants to be governor. He's willing to spend all his money. Like, why give up now? He'll just run it to the end. Unlike James Craig, at least you do see him out there. What, whatever, whatever your opinion is of him in front of a microphone, you at least see him in front of a microphone. I'm not sure I can remember the last time I saw James Craig out there. Yeah, I mean, other than, you know, on Fox News, um, you don't see a lot of James Craig, which, you know, is... Maybe that's doing good things for his fundraising. I mean, that report he filed at the end of the year doesn't seem to indicate that it is, but it could be. But it's not doing much to get you voters. Most of the people who are watching Fox News do not vote in Michigan. Yep. We should move on to others. But before the governor's in, obviously, very good shape right now. Is there a condition by which you think she could not win re-election in November? Sure. Absolutely. You know, I think that they're the fundamentals of this election cycle nationally are all bad for Democrats. If they get worse, and that's certainly possible, then that's going to have an impact on her reelection. You know, I just uh, I just bought a new house last month and I got an interest rate that was a little under five percent. You will not get that now. If you go out and you try and buy a house, you're going to pay perhaps close to six percent. Could be like five point seven, five point eight that you're going to pay. And that's six weeks later. That has a real impact on people's lives. It has an impact on people who are trying to cash out of the housing market. Um, you already pointed out that inflation is running rampant through the economy, but that can get a lot worse. You know, I mean, people were paying 19% on mortgages in the Carter administration. If people are paying 19% on mortgages at the beginning of November, whoo, Katie, bar the door. <laughs> Anything is possible. Yeah, the polling numbers across the board are horrendous for the Democrats right now, and you don't have to take my word or even Adrian's. Or, the governor's, even, or even Adrian's. <laughs> the governor's pollster, John Anzalone, a guy who's from Michigan originally, doesn't live here anymore, he's also Joe Biden's pollster. And he's just did a huge interview on Politico last week, and he's like, if any Democrat consultant tries to sugarcoat you and tell you that there's, a good, there's an opportunity here for Democrats, that's bullshit. Pardon my French. It was his French, actually. Plays, plays French. very well here. <laughs> yeah. So, like, he is, like, banging every drum and saying, we are really in a tough spot right now. And don't let anybody make yourself think that this will turn around or something else will happen. Um, so when the governor's own pollster is out telling national Democrats that, you have to take that seriously. Okay, let's move to the congressional delegation we have uh, for the, what, sixth cycle in a row? Lost. Michigan has lost a seat to another state, so we are down to 13. That's a, big, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. It means we're going backward on restaurant customers and hotel customers because the state is shrinking, and so we're losing every time they do a census. Don't trigger me, Selleck. I know. <laughs> I know. I get to watch some of my colleagues in other states bring in new members because it's just easy when your state's doubling in population over 15 years and not happening here. We've essentially been the same population for 30 years. 35 years? Yeah. yeah, the problem's actually getting worse, right? So 2020 uh, and 2021 were the first two years on record where there were more deaths than births in Michigan. For those prior redistricting cycles that you mentioned, we were essentially standing pat while other states were growing. At least for the last couple of years, that's not the case. We're actually shrinking now. Well, what is what is the loss of that seat? We are, we are compressing 14 districts into 13. What, uh, what does that look like? What interesting races are out there for, for either of you guys? Uh, well... One of the main races that are being covered nationally uh, is the race of uh, Representative Peter Meyer 
in Kent County. I think when he first was running last year and got into office, I was telling everybody that would listen, this is an example of the young new Republican who you can actually relate to that might be the future face of the party. And now he might not be a Republican <laughs> past the uh, December 31 or whatever it is, January 20th, because the very first thing he had to do out of the box is make a choice uh, whether to impeach or not to impeach. And he chose to impeach based on what he saw on January 6th, which made all of us pretty darn sick to our stomachs. Um, so he's got a challenger in that race. And then you take the redistricting commission that made a seat uh, less friendly to Republicans. And then you add a repeat run against what I think was a pretty quality candidate. Last time, Hillary Shulton, she raised a lot of money. She seems to, she's actually trying to essentially run as a Republican light. She talked about her faith and her family. She talked about business and jobs. She did not sound like one of the progressive Democrats that we hear about so much on TV. She sounded like a Grand Rapids moderate Republican. And I suspect we'll hear the same thing again. So that will be, uh, that'll be a race that you're seeing Chuck Todd and everybody else dropping into to talk about a lot this year. Yeah, the seventh new 7th Congressional District, which we are sitting in right now, mm -hmm. is another one that's on everyone's list. It's in danger of falling off of everyone's list. You know where you're sitting, and James Craig, when he was here, did not know where he was. He asked, I'm what stunned. <laughs> I'm stunned. But, uh, you know, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin is, um, has a massive financial advantage over her Republican opponent. Tom Share Barrett. some of those numbers, because she reported a massive haul the last time. I mean, she, she actually has more cash on hand than the governor. Which I mean, that's that's the gold standard right now, right? And uh, she um, she more than doubled up her Republican opponent in this last uh, reporting period. That's not good if you're trying to take out an incumbent. The district is very different in terms of the communities that are in it, but the partisan base is about the same. It's essentially a pick'em. I'm going to talk about all of these, like you know, we're we're odds making here. It's essentially a pick'em. There's no spread here, right? And she is the incumbent. She has way more money. Again. The environmental fundamentals are all bad for Democrats, but that's one that people are going to be watching unless um, Senator Barrett continues to fall further behind in the fundraising. You know, I, I think that this will probably stay on lists for a while. Yeah, she's been an amazing fundraiser, probably the number one, I'm guessing, amongst the whole delegation and often probably the top 10 nationally um, as far as their target seats, more than Haley Stevens, who usually is kind of in the same category as she, as far as um, new up and coming Democrat uh, congressional uh, members. The Republicans get a discount this time around, though, because of Joe Biden, because of all those other things that we talked about going all the way back to the pandemic. Shutdowns and uh, Tom Barrett fits. He's not somebody who's going to have to run in a challenging primary and prove how conservative he is. He already is that guy. Uh -huh. Right. And he's actually a pretty, in again, spades. Yeah. another guy, though, that is likable, has a great background. He's got the military background, which if you look at the uh, institutions left in America that people actually respect, the military is still one of those, so that you can see that on both sides. Both parties use that whenever they can. So um, I think that'll be a good position. She's already proven she can win, though, in a Trump plus one district. I live in Livingston County, which is was the reddest and probably still is the reddest part of the district, and she has no fear. She shows up. She goes out and talks normal, everyday common sense. But her voting record, Joe Biden, everything else will be placed on her just as if Trump will be placed on Tom Barrett. The other thing that she's got going for her is she has a very important you know, fire alarm she can ring. Alyssa Slotkin has never taken money from corporate political action committees. She sits on the House Armed Services Committee and is beloved by defense manufacturers and has never taken a dime from them. Obviously, if she feels like things are getting thick, she could probably raise a few million dollars in like a week. Mm -hmm. just from those folks. Well, and she may have to. You know, she all may. the good things that we talked about with Tom Barrett, he's a quality candidate. The national GOP 
has got him very high on their list. They're very excited about how that's going to go. And there's a lot of things he may not have to do, just like with the governor, no matter what Alyssa Slotkin does or no matter what Gretchen Whitmer does, they're going to be hurting. Yeah, I think you're right. So like, I think I think he's a very attractive candidate. fits a Republican mold, or at least what we used to think of uh, as as the, the prototypical uh, mold. And it is a good year. I think Alyssa Slotkin, to her credit, is... Uh, who raises money like she does by going to the middle and being moderate, not extreme, not trying to raise money by uh, signaling anything per se, other than she just wants to find solutions. She's on the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is amazing. Those two things don't normally go hand in hand, uh, but she has raised a, a, a sizable bag while actually being a, a moderate voice. That is not something you see in today's uh, congressional atmosphere. So the thing about it is, is that normies... We actually have more money. We can give it in larger <laughs> chunks. You can absolutely raise $25 at a time from crazy activists on the left and the right, but they're generally not doing as well as us. And that has been her fundraising uh, strategy because that's who she is as a person. She's naturally very moderate. Is She's going after the normies who have expensive houses on the river and boats and things like that and can write her a check for 1000 instead of 25 bucks. Let me hit two quick primaries before we move on past the congressional uh, races. 11th District primary, Stevens, Haley Stevens, sitting congresswoman from Oakland County, and Andy Levin, who has sort of moved into this district to avoid running against John James. Correct me if you think I'm wrong. Let me get my popcorn. That's, Hold actually, on. That's, we talk about this? you've got that exactly backwards. Um, Haley Stevens moved into this district to avoid running against John James. The Levin family has lived in this district essentially since time immemorial. This is where the family. The, but I think of the Levin family representing Macomb, though. You do. Well, and the and that was campaign's talking points are soaking in here because they're saying, here's a guy who abandoned Macomb County. That's exactly right? right. The Stevens campaign is very keen on pushing this narrative that, you know, Andy abandoned us. And they didn't make that talking point up on their own. Right. The National Democrats did because they wanted Andy Levin to run in that seat against John James right. because they knew that Haley Stevens would lose to John James. I think they were correct about that. Right. And Andy did not want to pull up stakes where he raised his family, where his father and grandfather raised their families and move into Macomb County, which is reasonable. Um, and so now there's this narrative out here that he's abandoned Macomb County, even though he still lives in the same house. Yeah, that's proving to be a spectacular dem-on-dem -dem violence battle, <laughs> MMA fight. Yeah, um, he, can't, he can't get enough of this. Selleck's <laughs> loving every second of this. I'm and just jealous. Predictions? I, I think you have to give a slight edge to Stevens, just because of the fundraising. The right? Brenda Lawrence endorsement was... Well, that was payback, right? Um, as you may recall, Andy Levin's father endorsed against Brenda in her first primary for Congress, and uh, Brenda's having hers served cold. <laughs> there's so much going on there though because there's obviously um old against young female against male and that's where the energy fight is in their party you know brand new outsider candidate uh and then the you know the the scion of a big political legacy and network uh going on there and he's not backing off an inch he hasn't shown any fear of of punching away so it's going to be a slugfest the entire time yeah it really will be interesting to see any thoughts on the 13th? There, it seems like there are many candidates who filed this 13th is uh, mostly Detroit, especially the east side along the river, going up into uh, Gross Point uh, and a little beyond there. Any thoughts? There are a lot of candidates, uh, very crowded Democratic primary field. Whoever wins that primary, very likely, even in this year, is going to win the general. Who, uh, who comes out of that primary? Yeah, the fundamentals will never be bad enough for Republicans to win <laughs> Michigan's 13th congressional district. It's going to be one of two people. It's either going to be Adam Ollier or Shri Tanadar. 
right? Shree's got the money. If Detroiters in particular are not able to consolidate around a single black candidate, which would be Adam, then Shree will win. And if they are, then Adam's got a puncher's chance. However, this district, this uh, primary is actually not going to be decided in Detroit. It's going to be decided in Taylor. So this district goes out into the points. Um, it goes out into Taylor and some of those downriver communities. And that's really, I think, where this is going to be decided. Because Nobody, it's the part of the district no one's from. Right? Correct. Yeah. Nobody who's running for Congress in this district currently represents. And it looks really different. It's, any of those downriver areas. Right? It's mostly white. Um, in some of those downriver communities that are in this district, Trump won. We're going to talk about that uh-huh. when we get to the House and the Senate and the <clears throat> favors that the redistricting commission did for Democrats that may not actually turn out very well for them this year. Democrats are going to have to win a bunch of districts in the state house that Trump won. To the extent that candidates in this 13th congressional race can reach out to Democrats in some of those white working class uh, union areas that are starting to realign against Democrats, mm-hmm. um, that's probably the candidate that prevails. Nice. Right. And I think um, Senator Allier has proven to be very ambitious, very aggressive. I get emails from him on the daily, pretty much, and texts. Uh, he's running a really strong campaign. Like you said, Sri Tanadar had run for governor against Governor Whitmer, spent a lot of his money then. Boy, he must have a lot more to spend. And so that, that'll be a fascinating race. There's already been a lot of infighting there, too, about the female versus male uh, on the, the folks that got together and endorsed Senator Allier. And then there was some beef that, well, where's the female support? Where's the candidates that uh, we should support to, to put a female in that seat? There's going to be a lot of fighting going on that one, too, just probably less above the radar, uh, in part because the names aren't as well known as the slugfest that's in the last district we talked about. True story. Let's uh, let's move on to the state Senate. Uh, some of our old stomping grounds, something we know of well. It has been in, it is currently in Republican tr- control by a margin of 21 to 17. Uh, has been in Republican control since the early 1980s. I was seven years old the last time Democrats <laughs> controlled the Michigan Senate. I wasn't alive. There yeah. you go. There you go. I guess she wins. Yeah. So, but Democrats, even in a bad year, are licking their chops. I've heard from from numerous Dem leaders in the Senate that they really believe that this map gives them a realistic shot for the first time in a long time uh, to take control of Michigan's Senate. Uh, so... What do you think about the race? Who, where, where, where are the pinch points going to be? And ultimately, who do you think is going to be in control uh, after the election? Let me put it this way. Sometime over the next 10 years, Democrats are going to flip the Michigan Senate. It's not going to be in 2022. This map is very, very favorable for Democrats. The fundamentals are very, very unfavorable for Democrats this year. And they're currently down six seats, right? It's 22-16 in the Michigan Senate, picking up six seats. Joe, edit me out saying 21-17. 21-17. I don't know who's right. I was pretty sure it was 22-16. Edit, edit someone out, Joe. Very good. <laughs> um, and you look, and there are really only six seats on the board this year. Um, as potentially in play. It's sort of beggar's belief that Democrats would run the table in all six of these. Some of them are very, very tough. Some of them, some of them they should win in. In order for that actually to happen, the governor would have to win by as much as she did in 2018, which was a blowout. Um, sorry, Selleck. I, I, I love your guy, but it was a blowout, right? It was like eight points. That doesn't happen in Michigan gubernatorial elections very often. Just man reminded all the time, every time there's an article in paper, it says Selleck, who worked for Shooty, who lost by nine points to Gretchen Wimmer. I see it every time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it would take it would take a victory by the governor on that order 
for them to flip the Senate. And I just I expect the governor to be reelected. But like an eight, nine point blowout, uh, nobody's made that case to me. Right. I think the the same deal there is the case there. And when you look at the the House toss up list versus the Senate, I mean, it's just vastly different. It's teeny. Uh, on the Senate side. I mean, some of these races I picked out today, I realized I was just picking them out because it seemed fun. Mm-hmm. Or there are people in them I want to see like really battle each other. I mean, you have some sitting legislators who are going head to head in a lot of these, in several of these seats, like in the 12th, uh, Pamela Hornberger versus Kevin Hertel. I that mean, it's going to be hot. That's going to be awesome. I'm going to make so much money on this race <laughs> and it's going to be so ugly. And I don't even work for either of the candidates. It's going to be glorious. <laughs> Yep, the 30th of Heisinga and David LeGrand, a long time West Michigan politician. He knows what he's doing. That's going to be a slugfest. I mean, Mike you Weber have the 30th and on your list. Wow. I'm just like, when I see some of these. Like, Are you turning into a Democrat, Salek? I want to see. Wait, you like, when you go to an MMA match, do you see, you want to see one weakling versus one tough guy? Or do you want to see, like, you know, two big battlers? And that's why I looked, when I look at the list, I want to see some battles. I feel like we're in different weight classes in that seat, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so, but I like Mike. Um, <laughs> look at the primary that's going on on the 35th, based around Midland with Annette Glenn and Tim Kelly and um, uh, Velasquez. And then they, you know, the Dems really love Kristen Rivet on their side in that seat. And then really maybe the most fun one by far will be the 37th, just because of all the hijinks going on on the Republican side in the primary with, uh, you know, DeMoose and Cole and the two other folks and then Trucker Randy running as a Democrat and all the good stuff going there. That'll provide, you know, endless bylines. Assuming Trucker Randy does not caucus with the Democrats, keep a happy thought. <laughs> there are really six seats that are potentially in play here. Um, there's SD9, your old stomping grounds, where we're going to get a matchup between former state representative Mike Weber and current state representative Padma Koopa. Again, talking about this in terms of point spreads, you're laying like five on the Republican side there for a base number. This uh, is this is suburban Oakland County. This is Troy, Rochester, Rochester Hills. Yeah. And it's also parts of Macomb County, which I think is why you have to make Weber a slight favorite here in addition to the base numbers like Shelby Township is not friendly territory for my tribe I'm just saying (laughs) SD 35 that Tri-City seat that you pointed out Democrats have a rock star recruit there who has exactly the right last name um, Mm -hmm. to be running out there SD 11 is interesting Senator McDonald's got to run for re-election in um, like a plus 6d seat he also has to survive a primary against Melissa Carone first I left that off my list that was too easy and Melissa Carone is hilarious um <laughs> if you don't know who she is just watch some back catalog of snl you'll be right up to speed she was featured on there nationally infamous but that's a, that's a tough reelect for senator mcdonald i mean he's got communities like fraser and east point that like these are not macomb county communities that have been affected by the realignment in the same way as like down river like the, they're deep blue SD32, we talked about Lakeshore districts before. This is a titanic matchup between State Representative Terry Sabo and um, State Senator John Bumstead. And this district's quite different. Bumstead's running for re-election. He's used to running in safe Republican primaries and not having a general. This district's a pick'em in yeah. terms of base numbers. Yeah, that's a good one. Because of the way that it was drawn, you mentioned Hertel versus Hornberger. This is the Lakeshore District on the other side of the state. It starts in the points in Wayne County and goes all the way up to Algonac, all the way around Lake St. Clair. They really did a number on so that. a lot of communities of interest in there. A lot of communities of interest. <laughs> the community of interest is, do you have a dock at your home? Um, that seems to be the community of interest, which I'm very interested in. I have a dock at my home. And then SD13, which Democrats should win. This one I'm watching. This is Rose Bayer, 
TBD who the Republican will be. There is a two-way Republican primary there. It's Plymouth. It's Northville. It's Novi. It's Wixom, Walled Lake. Key, up to Kego Harbor area. Right. The GOP didn't get the the more obvious person they wanted in that seat. Right. He backed out. And it's so. it's like plus six D. However, in a midterm election year, that should be in striking distance for Republicans. A lot's going to depend on the top of the ticket. Yeah. But that's the other one that's on my list. If the Democrats run the table in all six of them, congratulations, guys. But you got to run the table in all six of them. Yep. So you're predicting something in the ballpark of, of 2018, 2117? You know, I think I think that if the governor gets reelected by a decent margin, not a blowout, they might be able to get as high as like 17, 18 seats. So they could get close. But it's it's hard for me to see them running the table in all six of these, especially like that that. SD9 is going to be really, really tough. I mean, Weber is a quality Republican candidate. He's kind of an institution in Rochester. I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess they could have gotten Barnett to run, and that might have been a little bit better in Rochester. But short of Brian Barnett, Mike Weber is about as good as you do in the Rochester. Right. And like, you know, like you're basically trying to say, because we're dealing with a bunch of politicians that have already won several times and been elected, the idea that we're going to see one of them completely do something stupid or implode themselves is not high. So the the outside. But it's also factors. not zero. It's not. It's never zero. And Melissa Carone could win that primary. She could stop. <laughs> so the the governor's the governor's race, and then you know above and beyond is going to have a lot of effect on those seats. I, I love all the Mike Weber love going on in this podcast, Mike. It, you you know, Michael and I go all the way back to ASMSU together. Wow. I, I, we were all in school at the same time. I think you guys were the year after me. But yeah, yeah that's uh, I love me some Mike Weber. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Selick, any any. Bold predictions on, on on where we end up. How about a, how about a nineteen nineteen tie? Would, would would that be a fun one? Oh, that's no. a license to print money, John. Come on, <laughs> let's go. That's true, right? Good for <laughs> the business. The public affairs work. It's going to be off off the charts. No, I think that twenty one number sounds good for the GOP. I love I love your entrepreneurial spirit, Adrian. It's, just it's always. I'm I'm lukewarm on politics, but I do like money. <laughs> so good. The shark thing makes sense. Yeah, there and we go. I did notice there are sharks on your socks. There are sharks on my socks. <laughs> true to <right> brand. <laughs> Nice. Uh, let's flip to the House. Also a majority for Republicans right now, though somewhat narrow. Uh, what do you think? Uh, districts look more favorable to a Republican majority given the year, or do you see a flip? Well, the the people who love these districts are political consultants. I got 14 open seats with less than a six-point spread between the parties. Talk about a license to print money. Like, if you run campaigns for candidates, we don't. Don't call. Um, <laughs> then uh, I like money, but not that much. 14 open seats, no incumbent, less than a six-point spread. That's shocking, that, and that is the redistricting commission's work, right? Um, they wanted to maximize 50-50 seats, yep. and they're doing their level best. And then I've got a whole list of incumbents that could, you know, potentially have some issues, and, and those seats could change hands. That's a really wide-open playing field. And these are the seats in the House where it's <laughs> most likely where a Trump-endorsed candidate could get through. Yeah, um, You look at whether it's because there's low energy on the Democrat side or they're, they're just complete geniuses, they often have one or maybe two, if they had two, people on their side of the primary ledger, whereas the GOP always has three, four, or more. And you saw uh, the DeVos-backed uh, folks come out, the GOP donor class, this this week and the last week, and say, we're going to jump in and we are going to fund people that are not the Trump-endorsed people like Regan, we're not going to watch a repeat of that. And they said that before we saw the results of the Regan election. They probably <laughs> saw some numbers. So they are backing up Speaker Wentworth and his team. 
to try to um, fight and get the right candidates to come out of these primaries. It's, that is where we're going to see huge difference as opposed to the Senate because we don't have a bunch of battle-tested you know, objects that we know. We have a lot of unknown. Predictions? I mean, it's currently at, um, well, I guess it'd be 57-53 or soon to be. You know, I, I think, and again, this is largely dependent on what happens at the top of the ticket, not just with the gubernatorial race, but with the the clown who's running for attorney general um, against Dana Nessel. I, I think Democrats, if the governor wins by five, they might be able to get the shared control if she wins by five. If the governor wins by two, I think we end up around 58, 52. Yeah, I, I think the, the GOP is going to win it again. The governor's not going to win uh, probably by more than five, that's for sure. And you're going to see a lot of money behind the GOP candidates to keep control of the legislature. If they can't win the governor's race, they're going to absolutely make sure that they can keep control of at least one of the houses in the legislature, if not both. And at the same time, we see all these you know, Trump candidates. We see a lot of rookie candidates running in the House. There's a lot of unknowns that will go on there. But when you look at the House campaign committee and the amount of money that they have raised compared to the House Dems, it's a pretty big spread. Um, so all the resource stuff and the fundamentals in the election favor the GOP. So I think that's where you got to put your money. I mean, just for our listeners, you have to get to 56 out of 110 seats to hold the majority. Okay, we covered a lot of ground. I'd like to say in a short amount of time, but we've been going a while. We're, we're, we're rounding the bend. Last up, ballot proposals. I think it wouldn't be that many more months ago where we considered that there could be as many as eight, nine things on the ballot. At this point, given the challenges we've seen anyone have collecting signatures, what, if anything, makes uh, the ballot uh, and, and what, are your pro- what are its prospects? The abortion stuff's going to be on the ballot. Right. This um, uh, this reproductive choice ballot. Do you think that issue will play a role in this election cycle? Yeah. Um, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. absolutely. On both sides, frankly, I I think it'll play a role. You know, it'll it'll turn out right to life voters, too. But I definitely think that there's a slight advantage for Democrats there. I expect that one to make the ballot. You know, I think that there's a good chance that this term limits and ethics reform disclosure thing makes the ballot just because of who's behind it. Um, you know, if they're well-resourced enough and they're willing to pay the going rate for signatures, which is insane right now, it's around 15, 16 bucks a signature, then they'll make the ballot. Um, just do the basic math. That is 15 to $16 times... Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> it is uh, 340000 and some change on the initiated law, and then, what, about another 100000 from there to get something uh, in terms of a constitutional amendment onto the ballot. That's correct. So That's millions of dollars yeah. just for your ballot access. Yeah. So the bar is pretty high. And, like, volunteer signature collection, that's not real. Like, it's there are only two groups that have successfully done that. Right to Life which has a whole you know, sort of grassroots machine built around that. And then voters, not politicians, that did the redistricting. And that was remarkable. You know, I, I will admit, I ate some curl over that. I didn't think they'd get their signatures with volunteers. That's crazy. Yeah. And with more accuracy than anyone has ever done. It was, uh, listen, however you feel about the outcome of the, of the commission, the process sort of embodied everything you think the framers probably had in mind when they said how petition should be getting out of the ballot it was it was meticulous it was all volunteer run again i separate that however you might feel about the independent commission and how it was structured itself the process by which they got on the ballot was pristine it was impressive it absolutely was government by plebiscite is terrible but they did a good job and then they raked in the dark money at the end so as one does i mean that's how these ballot initiatives work right is you get yourself in striking dynamite drop in by the way and then you do the um then you do the rain dance right to get money from 
the nonprofits that are aligned with you ideologically, right? So if you're on the right, you're trying to get Koch brothers money and you're trying to get Peter Thiel money. If you're on the left, you're trying to get like, you know, tides and open society foundation money, but it's the same dance on either side. Don't sleep on the 1630 fund. Right. And that's what I was going to go to next, because if you look at the, the, the ballot committees on the Dem side, on the liberal side of things, especially the, there's two different uh, election uh, initiatives or activity uh, committees right now fighting the one re- election security one the GOP is putting up. The 1630 fund has sunk in millions already into petition collection uh, in both of those. Um, I think you're likely to see the scholarships issue put on the ballot. We saw the campaign finance report. It's got you know the DeVosses and the whole GOP donor class has already put their money in there to get those signatures done. We'll definitely see that. I think we'll see the whole battle on the election security issue the GOP version will be up there. The 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 Dem 1630 fund uh, version will be up there, and there'll be a battle royal on that front. I agree with Adrian, uh, and I do often, that the term limits initiative is going to be up there when you've got Mayor Duggan and folks like Rich Studley involved and uh, Jace Bolger. Uh, something's going to happen there, whether they convince the legislator the legislature to put it on the ballot for them, which I doubt, or they have to spend the money to get the signatures. I mean, they're under the gun on that front time-wise, but I think they're going to whether it can pass as a whole. Different that podcast. vote looks so self-serving in the legislature. What does that vote to put that on the oh, ballot? Yeah, right. It just looks so self-serving because the lawmakers are eligible, right? Yeah. Like you, Madam House member, like if this passes, you can do 12 in the House. Woo, go home and explain that. It's asking a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I do. I mean, as an aside, I said we shouldn't have a whole separate podcast on that issue. But I do think there's a way for that to pass. And they've shown how to do it in a couple other states. But they have to ravage the current politicians they have to say we are going to expose their books we're going to tear them to shreds and we're going to limit their their term limit money or their term limit time overall even though they can expand the amount of time they stay in one house the only way that messaging works is if you make it look like punishment i don't i don't know if they're going to be able to if they're going to do that or not yeah and i think the um i I think you're exactly right about that i think the other interesting thing in terms of the interaction of these ballot proposals um the ones that make the ballot and all of the elections we've been talking about is the sort of private school issue. You referred to it as scholarship issue because you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat, so I'm going to call it the private school issue. People mostly like their public schools, including in some very really? Republican... Right now? They're really happy with their schools right now? Actually, yes. I just saw some very interesting uh, Ipsos Reuters data that parents actually have exactly the wrong idea um, about learning loss over the pandemic. They think things are going great with their kids. Now, the research shows that they're objectively wrong about that, but they actually think things are going reasonably well. Huh. And historic- so you think the Democrats should tell the parents that they're doing it wrong. <laughs> that, that's the winning strategy. No, I think that this um, but I think that this ballot initiative may actually end up hurting Republicans in some areas of the state where they should overperform. Because the thing about it is like if you live in Pig's Knuckle Township in the northern lower, like there what are what county is that? <laughs> I think it's in every county. <laughs> I, I, there you don't have options, right? It's public school or bus. There are no charter schools. There are no private schools. Maybe there's a Catholic school a right. couple counties over, but there's a way to scare people with that, right? And you know, our, our friends in the education community have been very effective with scaring people about that self same issue before that, like, if you go for this, it's going to ravage your local public schools and there's nowhere else for your kids to go. I think actually it, um, you know, it'll be very interesting to see, is there more of a penalty for that in rural areas than there is potential gains to be made in places like Detroit or Pontiac? Um, it'd be very interesting to see. Mm. 
I don't know whether to be content that you haven't brought up the the one potential ballot proposal most interesting to <laughs> members of of uh, this industry, the raise the wage ballot proposal, fifteen dollar minimum wage, which is I think less concerning given inflation. That's hilarious, right? <laughs> right. I think the fifteen equals twenty six now is what I recently saw the the fifteen from when it started, but fifteen, no one really pushing back. But the the elimination of the tip credit continues yeah. to be an issue for this industry and 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 one that they are focused on and concerned about. Unlike what we just talked about about voters not politicians uh, having a a network of volunteers and a grassroots effort, this is a singular financed effort out of Massachusetts. Is that singular uh, financed effort out of Massachusetts going to find its way onto the ballot? I'm, I'm skeptical, partly because this isn't the only thing they've got going, right? Michigan's not the only game in town for them. Michigan's ballot is going to be incredibly polluted. It's an incredibly expensive environment to gather signatures because of all the stuff that we've just talked about. Right. So I think it's, I'm not saying that they won't make the ballot, but I'm very, very skeptical, especially because... You know, the $15 an hour thing is really pretty hilarious. Like, there are probably some areas of the state where you can hire someone to do, like, literally anything for $15 an hour. But most areas of the state, no, you're paying more than that. Right. And to the extent that they were able to talk the DEM infrastructure into helping on that thing, it just got obliterated by the row leak. All the energy is going to be piled on to that issue and that effort. Yeah, that, that's 100% true. Like Democrats have got other fish to fry right now. And frankly, other issues that juice the electorate more yeah. than a minimum wage. Like most people don't understand the tip credit. They don't even know that that's in there. But like raise the minimum wage to $15 is like, is this 1999? Like, <laughs> what, what are we doing here? <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see. We also know they didn't get to start until somewhere in mid-March to uh, oh, wow. crackerjack organizing. So they may have made some some errors um, you seem really drafting. disappointed about that. Well, it happens. It happens to the best of us. It happens to the best of us. Okay. I think we have touched it. Anything we didn't hit on, because we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Anything to wrap up how you, your, your sentiments and thoughts about 2022? Uh, you know, I am, I am really, really excited about people starting to figure out, like normies starting to figure out what happened to all of these districts. Because there are some hilarious districts out there. Probably my favorite in terms of what the um, what the commission did is I call it the test Tetris uh, district. Um, and I know you guys are going to put the maps up, you know, with this podcast. It's House District Forty Eight, so down in uh, um, Selick's neck of the woods. I call it the Tetris district. It includes portions of Livingston County, portions of Washtenaw County, portions of Jackson County. <laughs> Runs up actually kind of close to the city of Ann Arbor. It's bizarre. It's really, really bizarre. The other thing is that this is going to be a really, really rough year for pollsters. I was talking a couple days ago with Richard Shuba, a pollster that we all know, I think respect, and he was trying to put together a sample for a poll. Well, not only have the districts changed, and we're not really respecting political jurisdictions, at least till we get down to the precinct level, but a number of jurisdictions have changed their precinct arrangements to oh, wow. interact with the changes in the district lines. How do you draw a sample for that when you don't actually know the voting outcomes from prior elections because the precincts and the districts are new? Very challenging. Yes. And clerks have all of my empathy going into this. <laughs> oh, God bless those all people. <laughs> and then there's the fantastic job that Justin Winslow and Emily are doing at this association. Oh, Really, wow. we should talk about that. Absolutely. 
Joey can cut that. <laughs> but what we are going to cut, what the people really came for, they like the politics. The politics is good. It it, it, it it makes this town flow. What they really came here to listen to and they've been waiting an hour for, what are your thoughts on Detroit Pistons free agency and draft? It's coming up. It's your team. It's your team. It's mine. They may get the number one pick in this year's draft again. They, are, they have combined the ability to suck and be promising for the future. That's the best. That's the best thing you can have. So if they get the number one pick, who are you going with? Man, I really like Bonchero. I really like that you just guy. Like saying his name. I do also like saying his name <laughs> and being cool able name. to refer to a guy as Ronchero. Like, well, really, what could be wrong with that? I, I like that guy. I think that he would be a uh, a good long term fit. I think he still has tons of upside, and uh, you know, I think it would be a really nice compliment for um, Cade Cunningham. Create some more space on the floor for him. I think Cade has said on the record that he would love to see Paolo on the team. Yeah, those two like each other yeah. too, and I, I don't think you can discount that. No, he he's a beast. There's the whole Duke thing we'd have to look the other way on, but um, wouldn't even be the only Duke power forward on the team. But go on, <laughs> <laughs> right? Problem. The best one, but yeah, yeah. yes, <laughs> right, yeah. Oh no, I'd be very excited if we were able to get him. I like Jabari a lot. Another wonderful name. I, I enjoy that name too. What I can't get comfortable with is Holmgren. And That's I probably listen, pick. I listen to too much Bill Simmons, and he just like <laughs> mocks him all the time. I just watch this guy, like, wow, really? This is the guy we're going to take. I think he has the most upside, but he has the most risk, obviously. Uh, and so it'll be interesting for it those listeners who have no get. idea what we're talking about. Chet Holmgren is seven one seven two and like one ninety. Yeah, right. It seems almost physically impossible. <laughs> right. No, big minute bull energy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think Jabari is a better shooter, is my guess, than than Banchero, and that's why I've leaned toward him. But I loved watching him in the tournament. Love it. Love it. A lot to add here. Doesn't the first pick mean you're the worst team? Can I throw, like, well, it's a lottery. It means we're okay. among the worst teams. Okay. Which I think we're like the third worst team by record over the last year. But this is the content people came for. So it'll You know be... what's interesting, briefly, about this? And I found Not briefly. Go in detail. Bill Simmons talks about this as well. Our children. Are you on the BS podcast? I should be. <laughs> Our children don't care about the Pistons. They like Cade. They jumped up and down when we won the ladder. We were watching it live. People are going crazy. Half my house are actual athletes that couldn't give a crap about watching sports. And then there's my half the family who's obsessed <laughs> with sports and aren't really athletes. So the other half the family's like, what are you guys doing in there? We got the number one pick. <laughs> that that they just they don't follow the Pistons like we do. There will be no more Homer fans because they can see everything all day on their phones, on TV. I've got one son who is obsessed with the Celtics. And growing up, how could you do that? How could I have let this happen? But there he is. Bird steals the ball still like stings from my youth. I I will maintain to my grave that those Celtic teams were dirtier than the bad boy Pistons. Oh, yeah. Mikhail, Bird, like the Pistons get the rep. They do. But those those Celtics teams that the bad boys went up against were even dirtier. Please tell me you're watching Winning Time on HBO because Larry Bird gets the treatment on that <laughs> show. Does. He is like straight up evil. <laughs> don't don't tell me too much. It's I'm, so sa- good. I'm saving it watch for it. later. <laughs> Do not watch it. Not safe for children. Probably not safe for work, depending on your work environment. It is hilarious that Jerry West is so bent out of shape, but now he's sort of like going to fade as Larry Bird takes this, the center light of being the meanest, the meanest, nastiest guy that ever lived. This content is phenomenal and completely irrelevant to why you guys are here today. But I want to thank you both for spending a considerable amount of time and your expertise. We covered a lot of ground, and it's going to be interesting to watch this all play out over the next couple months. So thank you for being here today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Uh